0: Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We'll be looking at chapter 1 this morning, and as we read this, if any of you need to take a seat, that is certainly okay. Hear the word of the living God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus, the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them and among them all was none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. And now, righteous Father, we pray that in the preaching of Your Word, You might encourage the souls of Your people. Convict us, exhort us, guide us, we ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The very last verse of Daniel, chapter 1, reveals to us that Daniel, a Hebrew, brought from the land of the Hebrews. from God's covenant people's land into exile, into Babylon, that this Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. It would be King Cyrus who would ultimately bring about the freedom of the Hebrews from captivity, from exile, from the grasp of the Babylonians, and return them and give them permission to return to the land of Israel so that some 400 years later, Jesus Christ would be born in that land and from this people. You see, God's promise from the very beginnings of the pages of Scripture, the promise to Abraham was that from Abraham's body, from his flesh, would come a Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. This promise God had given to Adam and Eve, now he furthers to Abraham. Look, Abraham, your offspring are going to be like the stars of the sky. But this required that the Hebrews live in the land that God had given them and that they stay faithful to God's law and his ways. And these things they did not. And so many centuries later, God brings upon them the judgment of, the curse of breaking the Old Covenant. We spoke of these things last week. And we read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, that it was Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king of the Babylonians, who crushed Jerusalem and brought into his land many of the Hebrews' exiles. But it's verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1 that tells us who ultimately is behind all of these things, the living God. Notice there in verse 2, And the Lord, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. As we mentioned last week, these very things were prophesied. These things were discussed throughout the pages of the Old Testament. One such place would be the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 39. God, several generations before Nebuchadnezzar's crushing of Judah had told one of the kings of Judah that this would happen. Isaiah 39, 5 through 7. And see if there aren't any words that strike you as familiar. Isaiah 39, 5 through 7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated unto this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you and whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah 39, 5-7, along with Daniel chapter 1, has raised the question for many scholars down through the ages. Was Daniel actually one of these eunuchs? Was Daniel one of these that was spoken of in Isaiah 39? It is, of course, in Daniel chapter 1, the master of the eunuchs, the leader of the eunuchs for King Nebuchadnezzar, who has charge of Daniel and Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah. There is a mix of thought as to whether Daniel was actually a eunuch, physically changed in his body, and thus not able to bring about seed. Really, the question is only to consider this, whether Daniel was one of these or not. The people of Judah had been crushed and the very promise that God had given to them through their father, Abraham, that through him seed would come. Many of these men were changed in physical body in such a way that that very promise was no longer possible. Now, Daniel, chapter one, verse four says that the king wanted young men in whom there was no blemish, leading many scholars to say, well, Daniel and his friends were not in this group prophesied in Isaiah 39. Either way, this band of men, perhaps known most famously as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had all the reason in the world to think that the covenant blessings of God were gone whether or not they were actually in this band of eunuchs. They had all the reason in the world to think that God had forsaken them, that he would not return with his covenant mercies, and that God's promises would no longer be seen among them. And yet here they stand, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah stand as examples of living for God, In Babylon, they continued to live as if the living God was the only God. When all around them, they saw people doing horrendous things. They continued to live as if the living God's promises were still true for them. That the living God would be faithful as they continued to serve him, even in exile. What does it look like? To live for God in Babylon. What does it look like to be a person who has faith in the living God when all around you the world has ways which are foreign to the ways of the living God? What does it look like to be a person of God, to be in covenant with God and yet? At many instances in your life to suffer or to hurt or to be persecuted in such a way that you begin to question, is God still faithful to me? This, of course, raises another question. Is God really sovereign over all things? So against the backdrop of this question of what does it look like to live for God in Babylon, I just want us to walk through this text today and to see three simple things. Daniel's day is similar to our day. And the first thing that I think we see in Daniel's day and in our day is the ways, of the world. The ways of the world. Look what happens in verses three through eight you get some of the ways of the world. As you read this particular text, you might just be thinking, well, this is good fortune, isn't it? I mean, of all of the people who are basically crushed and taken into exile, these four men, among others, really get a good spot. I mean, here they are. They're practically in the king's palace. They're eating his food. They're cared for. They live in the air-conditioned homes of Babylon. Notice what's actually happening in this text. You read of it most starkly in verse 8 with the first word in just about every English translation. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. But Daniel purposed in his heart. Why would Daniel need to do such a thing? Why not just have a private prayer time each and every day Uh, Read the scraps of God's word that perhaps some of the Jewish leaders had snuck into Babylon with them. Why not just pray and sing psalms quietly and go about your life? Notice what happens in the ways of the world. In verse four, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar wants the best of all the Hebrews. And what does he want to do with them? Verse four. Whom? they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. I want to take the best of these Hebrews. No more Torah for them. No more book of Psalms for them. It's the literature of Babylon. Now, there's nothing in this text for us to say we shouldn't study the language and literature of other cultures. Boys and girls, if you return to school or you're sitting at your homeschool table and mom or dad wants to teach you a foreign language or or wants you to read a book that is written by a a non-Christian, that is not the point of this passage. That is not to be condemned based on this passage. Rather, what we see is that Nebuchadnezzar wants to craft the best of the Hebrews and make of them Babylonians. Verse 5, it's the food. But perhaps most starkly and strongly, it happens in verses 6 and 7. You might be thinking, well, isn't the preacher making a little bit much about the fact that the king wants to kind of train them? I mean, what's wrong with training? I will change your names. What are your names? Hebrews? Well, in... Every single case, their original names are God-honoring names. Names that have variations of El or Yah, which should sound familiar, Yahweh, in them. But what are the names that the king's servant changes them to? Well, they're names that we recognize. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All names of which come with variations of the gods of the Babylonians. For instance, Daniel's new name, Belteshazzar, really is a variation of the Babylonian god, Bel. We're going to teach you our ways. We're going to have you eat our food. We're going to change your identity and we're going to name you after our Gods. The Babylonian plan was in full swing. Give them our food, teach them our ways, give them a new identity. Friends, this was 2,500 years ago. And yet, doesn't this often seem to fit the ways of our world today? I know that I don't have to labor long here, parents, but the world is not Neutral to your children. The world has a very systematic catechism plan for your children. Give them our food, food, give them our ways. Teach them to adopt our identities. Nebuchadnezzar is not unique in this sense. The master of the eunuchs is not unique in this sense. Daniel is brought into exile. It seems as though every last word of God is no longer going to be true to him. And what does Babylon do? We will put you in the pinnacle of our palaces, but we want you to learn our ways. We want you to be known after our gods. Daniel demonstrates what it's like to live for God in Babylon. And by the way, what city does the book of the Revelation say you and I walk in all of the time? Babylon. Daniel demonstrates the fact that Babylon is not a neutral place to the people of God. Babylon all throughout the scriptures, particularly in the book of the Revelation, is a picture of the world arrayed against the living God dressed in armor, marching against the living God. So verses three through eight give us a picture of the ways of the world. Now, the beauty of this situation is that God is going to use this education and this training and this positioning. But make no mistake. Early on, the cream of the crop of Yahweh's people is in the midst of a three year long catechism program. The ways of the world. But the second thing that we see in our text, and we see it all throughout the Bible, but we see it in Daniel chapter 1 is the resolve of the faithful. The resolve of the faithful. You get this description. And then in verse 8, we read those two startling words. But Daniel. But Daniel. There's a clear shift here. A long description of all of the things that Nebuchadnezzar's hosts were going to train Daniel and his friends in. But we see a resolve in Daniel's heart. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. At the outset, let me say this, just in case there are any of you like me, perhaps years ago, who have heard slightly wrong arguments about what's happening here. The argument is not about Daniel needing to eat more vegetables. There are actually people who argue that the point of this particular passage is that vegetables are good for you. Boys and girls, they are. (laughs) But the light of nature teaches us that, right? Reason and studying God's creation teaches us that. Daniel's defilement was not that he needed to eat less sweets and more carrots and spinach. So if that's the way you're approaching this text. Feel free to continue to cook your vegetables. Just don't use Daniel chapter one as an argument for how you prepare meals in your home. The argument here is not about eating more veggies. Verse 12 tells us that that's what Daniel asks for. Please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Leading some to say, ah, the issue is cakes and cookies and prime rib versus veggies. That's not the issue. Daniel uses a specific word here. He would not defile himself. The issue is that Daniel did not want to be defiled and dishonor the living God by his food. Now, why defilement? Why defilement? Well, there are likely several explanations here. It's interesting, as you read various scholars on this chapter, you might get one, two or four to six explanations. But most everyone kind of gets to two core potential issues of Daniel's concern. Number one, the Old Testament ceremonial laws. The concern that there might be in the foreign food of the people of Babylon foods which go against the diet prescribed for the Hebrews and the ceremonial law in places like Leviticus 11:1 1 through 23. We won't read it there, but there is a long list of what you are not to eat. In Leviticus, 1, Leviticus 11, 1 through 23. And it's very likely that Daniel's concern was some of the foods that he is going to set before me are going to dishonor the law of God. Now, as an aside, if you're new to the things of Scripture, let me just say this. The word law of God is used in a variety of ways throughout the Scriptures. There are two main kinds of commands that God gives. One set of commands abides at all times and in all ages. It's present in the hearts of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's present at Mount Sinai on tablets of stone. It's present as Jesus Christ dies on the cross to uphold it. And that's the moral law of God. Summarized in the Ten Commandments. But every other kind of command in Scripture is a a kind of law that God posits or puts forward and it's connected to a particular covenant time and a particular covenant people. So if you're sitting here going, well, it's kind of hypocritical of you Christians to talk about the law of God when there are clearly foods that you eat that the Old Testament says not to eat, but the Old Testament food laws... Were laws that were connected to the old covenant. Just like it's not wrong for us to look back and see that Abraham didn't baptize or practice the Lord's Supper, and yet we're commanded to do that. So Daniel was concerned about some of those food laws for the old covenant people of God. If they put this food in front of me, I might be defiled ceremonially. This is the Daniel who saw his people crushed. This is the Daniel who, humanly speaking, had every reason to question whether he would ever see Jerusalem again. This is the Daniel who had every reason, humanly speaking, to question whether God was still for him. But he purposed in his heart that he would not be defiled. So the laws might be one of the issues. Another issue might be that Daniel didn't want the subtlety of fine delicacies to pull away his heart from the living God. I'll use these two words, devotion and discipline. Devotion to God's law, that might be part of it. And discipline. Look, if we if we allow ourselves to be pampered in such a way day by day, day in and day out, our pride might swell or we might be distracted from serving the living God in ways that he's called us to. What kind of defilement is on the mind of Daniel in Daniel chapter one, verse eight? Well, it's either devotion to God's law or discipline regarding temptations. Listen to what the Puritan Matthew Poole comments regarding this text. Quote, Daniel knew these delicacies would too much gratify and pamper the flesh, and therefore he would prevent the defilements, which too often do arise from delicious fare so that those who fare deliciously would practice this. Daniel knew he should by this bait be taken with the hook which lay hid under it and insensibly be drawn from the true to a false religion by eating and drinking things consecrated to idols. What's, what's, what's wrong with taking the foods of this king? I mean, God's put me here and God's provided for me in such a way that, that even though this food causes me to have less and less of a taste for the kinds of foods that my God has given to me. And even though this kind of food day in and day out, three meals a day, causes me to think less about the living God, I'll still do it. Almost using God's sovereignty as an excuse to grow lazy in the faith. You ever done that? Devotion and discipline. Seems like these were the two things. A mixture thereof, one or the other, that caused Daniel to purpose in his heart. He would not be defiled. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Notice that phrase there, purposed in his heart. Notice that this was something that Daniel had already settled in his heart. He was a man of conviction. He was a man planning on living for the living God. You can't see it in English. Commentators point this out. It's quite interesting. But in the original language here in Daniel chapter one in verse seven, a particular Hebrew word is used when it speaks of the chief of the eunuchs giving names. In our translation, it says to them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names or it could be translated set the names planned to give the names. And then the very next phrase, the same Hebrew word is used regarding Daniel. The master of the eunuchs is setting in motion false God names. But what is David purposing, setting in motion his heart? See, the world sets its ways, but we are called to set our hearts Daniel purposed in his heart. Now, boys and girls, I want you to listen closely to Pastor William. I want you to notice that Daniel was likely a child or a teenager when he was taken. And very quickly, this situation that Daniel was in was upon him. So as an older child or a, a young man, Daniel was at a point in his journey where he had purposed in his heart that he would seek to serve the living God. Consider what this means. Someone had to have trained Daniel. Some set of parents had sought to catechize Daniel in a particular way, not just to fill his head with doctrine, but to fill his heart, if you will, with a desire by the Spirit's grace to serve the living God. Parents, we must be training our children to make godly choices. We must be training our children to be deliberate even now. Children, talk to mommy and daddy about this one today. But let me strongly encourage you. Choose now what your convictions will be. Choose now what your convictions will be. Choose now who your God will be. Choose now whose ways you honor, because the world will throw all kinds of things at you. At the risk of doing what so many people do and miss Christ in the book of Daniel. Be like Daniel. Be like Daniel. Who was longing for God's ways. Daniel knew to whom he belonged. And he made choices accordingly. He set his heart accordingly. Friends, the scriptures tell us as New Covenant believers that we belong to someone. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. You will recall these words. Let me read them. 1 Corinthians 6, and verse 20. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It's, It's no longer certain kinds of foods for you and me, Christian. But God's owning of us still requires that we remember that we are to honor God in body and soul. That text in 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that we were bought with a price. What does that mean? Well, it means that the living God owns the Christian in a special way. God owns all things, boys and girls. He made all things out of nothing. He, He simply spoke them into existence. There's nothing that God doesn't control or own. We don't give God anything as if he lacks something. But there is a special kind of ownership that the living God, the triune God, has over Christians. He owns them in the sense that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who put on flesh and dwelt among us, shed his blood to purchase us as a possession for God. If you're a Christian, meaning that you've come to see that you're a sinner, That Christ died for your sins, that he's the only way of salvation, freedom from the judgment of your sins, which deserve the justice and judgment and wrath of God. If you're a Christian, then that means that you are owned by God because Jesus poured out his blood for you, specifically for you. So years after Daniel was written, Paul can come along and tell the Corinthian Christians, hey, what you do with your body and what you do with your spirit matters because you, Christian, belong to God. Blood has been spilt to pay for your sins. The book of Acts says that the living God shed his blood to purchase the church. So we see in Daniel chapter 1, the ways of the world. And we see an example in Daniel of the resolve of the faithful. A person who says, I belong to the living God. I do not want to be defiled by the ways of the world that go against what God has told me to do. Or that might dull me to the temptations that are to come. There's a resolve here. Thirdly, in our text, we recognize the sovereignty of God in a variety of ways. The sovereignty of God. You know what happens. You heard it read a few moments ago. Daniel asks if he and his people could be given a different diet for a period of 10 days. And of course, the steward of the chief of the eunuchs is concerned I've been told to give you certain foods. And if I don't give that to you and you grow weak and pale, if your body is not as fit as these others, my head is on the line. But Daniel prevails upon the steward, says, hey, give us. Give us a few days. Give us. Just give us vegetables and water. None of the rich delicacies of the king. Just give us vegetables and water. And let us see if after a period of days, our desire is not true. Of course, who looks the best? It's Daniel and his men. They look the strongest. In fact, verses 17 and following say that they are some of the sharpest. Ten times as much. And if you, if you make Daniel chapter 1 about the kind of food, a sort of Daniel diet, you'll miss all of what's happening in Daniel chapter 1. It's not about veggies versus ribeye. It's about Daniel wanting to live for the living God. How do we see God's sovereignty in these things? Well, perhaps at least four specific areas in our text. Verse two, notice there. We've seen it already. God directs circumstances. Verse two, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. How do we see God's sovereignty in Daniel chapter one? Well, firstly, we see that he directs circumstances. He did it for Daniel and he does it for you, Christian. Your current journey, your current place, struggles and joys are directed by a sovereign God who upholds you by his spirit and has given you given you promises of loving kindness and mercy. He directs circumstances. But in verse nine, we also see that God positions his people. Look at verse nine. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. It'd be mighty tempting for Daniel to think, perhaps for us to think, Daniel was just a sharp guy. His resume was really good looking. But who is it that brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs? It was God. We see this again in verses 19 to 21. God is the one who places Daniel at the king's right hand all the way through. Look at verse 19. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. God positioned Daniel where he was. Where has God positioned you? How tempting is it sometimes to gripe and complain about where God puts us? It may not be the best of circumstances. It certainly wasn't for an exile in Babylon. Or perhaps on the other end of the spectrum, how easy it is for us to get prideful in our own abilities. But it's God who positions his people. Maybe you're jealous of another person. You're grumbling in your heart about the fact that they have the position that you wanted. They have the kind of job that you really want. Why why, why do they get to have this and not you? My friend, I would just suggest to you that when you do such things in your heart, your grumbling is really not at another person. It's at the sovereign God. You know, a third area in which we see the sovereignty of God is that God brings about results. Look at verse 15. And at the end of the 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter and flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Daniel said, I want to seek to follow my God. Will you let me? And God honors Daniel's request a daring request, quite frankly. But fourthly, the sovereignty of God is seen in how he gifts his people with abilities. Look at verse 17. And as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge. And skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This will become very crucial in the next chapter. It is God who equips and gifts his people. So, how do we see God's sovereignty? Well, he directs circumstances and he's directing yours. He positions his people right where he wants them and he's doing that for you. He brings about the results. Seeking to live according to his ways. And it is God who gives his people with abilities. Daniel chapter one reveals several aspects of living in Babylon. It shows us a little bit of the imprint of what it's like to live in Babylon with the ways of the world. It helps us to see one example among many of a young man who is seeking to be faithful in the midst of Babylon. And it reveals that God is sovereign over all things. What is it like to live in Babylon? Well, it's gut wrenching, really. It rocks you to your core, really. Really? There are days, weeks, months, sometimes even years where you wonder if the living God is even in control. There are days and weeks and months where the delicacies of the people of Babylon seem much better for you or you and your family than God's ways. It's quite frankly, a war. And the only thing... The only thing that you have, this is it. You have a sovereign God who loves you and bought you with His blood. You have a sovereign God who places every single hair in place and gives you promises that He will not leave you nor forsake you in Babylon. That's all you have. And that's all you need. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us. For we too live in as it were Babylon. Help your people. To seek to glorify you and to rest and to purpose in their hearts. To rest on you and your word and ways. These things we ask in Jesus name.